Good to see everybody this morning and uh, be back and worshiping with you. And I'm thankful for uh, your prayers while we were uh, traveling. Uh, for the Lord was kind and merciful and has brought us back uh, to you all safe and sound. And we enjoyed our time in Oregon and uh, worshiping with a small congregation out there also in a small community called Tillamook. Not uh, or easily confused or to be associated with the cheese and uh, the ice cream more more better. Yeah. Amen. Um, but uh, we're glad to be back. I'm glad to be back and I'm especially glad to be back here in the pulpit. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians chapter two. We continue our study in Ephesians together. Today, we continue our study specifically in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is the second part of, uh, of this uh, section as we address Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And one of the things that we've been looking at as it relates to Ephesians 2, and especially the second part of Ephesians 2, is, is we ask ourselves the question, what is the implication of the inbreaking of the age to come in Christ. That he is creating a new creation, beginning with a people set apart for his glory. How will these people relate to one another? How will they relate to Christ? For there is one who has come first, and there is one who has come second. And we'll see as we address the second half of Ephesians 2, uh, or the middle portion of Ephesians, of the second half of Ephesians 2. If you aren't confused yet, uh, don't worry, we have more, to, I have more to go. Uh, but we will be looking at Ephesians 2, just so you have a point of reference, verses 13 through 17. As we observed the last time I was with you, or before you, that it was in the previous section of Ephesians 2 that the power of the gospel was displayed in the triune God's new creation work in bringing dead sinners to life in Christ. Here in the second half of Ephesians 2, the theme of God's divine work granting new life to his people takes on the form of reconciliation. In doing so, we also observe that although this portion of Ephesians 2 addresses primarily Gentile Christians, it does so in such a way as to bring the Jews into the understanding that this was as much for them as it was for the Gentiles. For the Jewish Christian would see the good news that God was fulfilling his promise to Israel through Christ by the inclusion of of the Gentiles. So follow along as I read for us the second half of Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11 through verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having, it put, to, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to, you, to those who were near. For though he, though for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let us ask the Lord's help this morning in prayer. O oh Lord, we come before you this morning and we ask your help as we come before your word. We ask that you would uh, speak through this time of preaching that we may be edified. We ask also that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things for your glory alone, and we pray them in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've been working through Ephesians 2, one of the things that we've been trying to do, or as I've been trying to do, is expose you to the idea that there are echoes of Ezekiel 37 here in Ephesians 2. And in these echoes of the divine author, it makes the scriptures one in Christ. So if you can, flip quickly to Ephesians 37, or Ephesians 37, Ezekiel 37, and we'll just look at a few verses, or we'll, we'll look at a number of verses in, in Ezekiel 37 to kind of draw this point. Because as we come to the second half of, of Ephesians 2, we find that we, we have parallels to the second half of Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 15 through the end of, uh, or verse 15 through 23. We, we see that the Lord, in speaking to Ezekiel, is giving him another prophecy. The previous one in the first 14 verses was one whereby he was, to, he was brought up in vision to, to prophesy over dry bones. And these dry bones were brought together individually and brought into joint. And then a breath was brought upon those bones. And the breath brought these bones to life. And it said... And they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. We see within that, as we saw in the first part of Ephesians 2, we see that individual salvation of the Lord, whereby he brings what was dead to life by the word of his command. And so then as we see in, Ephes or in Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 15, there's a connection here because the word of the Lord came again to me saying and you son of man take for yourself one stick and write on it for judah and and for the sons of israel his companions and take another stick and write on it for joseph the stick of ephraim and all the house of israel and his companion and he was told to take these sticks and before uh, the assembly to put them together and bind them together 
and proclaim to them in verse 19, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it with put them with it with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. And just verse 24, my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. What we have recognized or observed in this passage of Ezekiel 37 is that this, this language, though uh, veiled in, in type and shadow, is clearly language of new covenant blessing, whereby the Lord is to take two and make one, and those, that one is to be blessed by a, a singular king, and, he, and even more specifically, that the Lord would be their God and they would be his people. And so what we see as yet with Ephesians, we find in Ezekiel a prophecy of a new created people, a new humanity. The new creative work of God in resurrecting sinners will result in a reconciled humanity where deep feudal divides are abolished and a new people is made. And this new humanity will constitute a new temple, a new dwelling place for God's glory. In Ezekiel, there is prophecy that God will dwell with his people again. And this is found typologically with the Messiah, who is the cornerstone of this temple, and of which the redeemed community is being built together as. So this morning we are addressing the center of that second half of Ephesians 2, where we find this reconciliation explained. How, is, how are we reconciled to God? By what means are we reconciled to God? And what does this implication does this have for the people of God? So if you look with me at, at the second half of Ephesians 2 at a whole, we, we've been trying to recognize the correspondence that takes place where we're, when we uh, boil it down, we have correspondence between verses 11 and 19 through 22. In verse 11, we find that the, that the Gentiles are referred to as the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. The Gentiles were outside the household of God by ceremonial rite. And verses 19 through 22, it says, So they are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So there's correspondence there. We see correspondence between verses 12 and 18. Remember that you are at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers 
to the covenants of promise. And then in verse 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. In verse 12, there's exclusion. In verse 18, there's access. And so this middle section that we're addressing this morning, verses 13 through 17, kind of provides uh, this uh, little mini climax or this little mini apex. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly were afar off have been brought near. And then in verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. As we address uh, this section this morning, we're going to address it under three headings. The first heading is he predestined peace. The second heading is that he produces peace. And the third heading is that he preaches peace. Well, when where, where do we get an understanding that he predestined peace? Because Paul speaks of a word, he speaks a word of divine power, just as in 120, where he spoke of divine power raising Jesus from death, and in 2.4 testified to God, giving new birth to those children of wrath. So here, triune power brings the estranged into the presence of God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, you were estranged, you were cut off, you were outside, have been brought in and near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. It's in two ways he predestined peace. First, in himself or or God predestined peace in Christ Jesus. Secondly, he predestined, predestined peace as he himself is our peace. I found uh, C.H. Spurgeon helpful here. He says, all the elect of God are in Christ Jesus by a federal union. He is their head, ordained of old to be so from before the foundation of the world. This federal union leads in due time, by the grace of God, to a manifest and vital union, a union of life and for life, even unto eternal life, of which the visible bond is faith. This phrase, in Christ Jesus here, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, speaks of both an in-time uh, transaction whereby these Gentiles uh, by faith are united to Christ and are justified before God. But it implies by it being in Christ who you were formerly far off, something that precedes their faith, something that would in, in reality guarantee their faith. That being that eternal covenant or what's known as the covenant of redemption. Whereby the triune God covenants to save a people for their own glory. And this people, this elect of God are chosen out of the world. So that they would by their reconciliation to God display the riches of his mercy. Our confession 
speaks of it this way in chapter 7 of God's covenant. In paragraph 3, it says, This covenant is revealed in the gospel. This is speaking of the covenant of grace. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterward by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. What we find here in this first part is we find that God predestined peace in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world in that eternal covenant transaction whereby we have our assurance that Christ was to complete his work in that union with him we will be justified that we are justified that we will be sanctified and that ultimately we will be glorified the other way we see that he predestined peace was that we find in this phrase he himself is our peace Christ the eternal son of god is the prince of peace you're familiar with your advent readings or your christmas time readings isaiah 9:6 for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god eternal father prince of peace this prince of peace came into the world this prince of peace pre-existed before the world began. And so he comes not necessarily becoming the prince of peace, but acting on his peaceableness. For he himself is our peace. We find in Christ the substance of our peace. We look not to things like our faith as the basis or foundation of our peace. We look to Christ alone. Christ is himself our peace, and he produces peace. Here we see that Christ is the end of peace, as well as the conduit of enjoying that peace. You know, as we uh, consider the just the recent actions in our world today and we consider this idea of peace we think of the global community if you will we think of the world and we think of a place like like afghanistan and we think about the unrest the upheaval that's taking place there the lack of peace that they are experiencing especially those that name christ especially those that do not align themselves with the new regime. They find themselves, where is peace to be found? Peace is to be found in something more stable than governments. For we, in our own nation, are able to see what uh, a spark of unrest can sweep a nation as it did a couple years ago or maybe just last year. We saw unrest and we saw no peace. And maybe even in our own hearts, as we anticipate the workings of our own local government and our own um, requirements and restrictions, things that 
are, are going to be asked of us or required of us or, or stands that will have to be taken, ex explanations made. And we ask ourselves, where is peace? Or we find ourselves a little unsteady. We should look no further than Christ to find our peace. And we should see that the fruit of a union with Christ is that he produces peace. How is this peace produced? By his blood and by abolishing in his flesh enmity. First thing Paul does before we get to addressing uh, interactions between Jew and Gentile is he deals with interaction between God and man. For we could have peace amongst each other and amongst humanity and yet be in rebellion against God. And if that be the case, then we have gained nothing in our peace between one another if we have not peace between us and God. So first, by his blood. The blood is the symbol of covenant. Ever in scripture, when covenants are made, victims are offered. And the victim becomes the place and ground of approach between the two covenanting parties. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ is expressively called the blood of the everlasting covenant. For God comes in covenant near to us by the blood of his only begotten son. The blood is a symbol or is the symbol of covenant. In the Hebrews it says, there is no forgiveness of sin except by the shedding of blood. This is what was reinforced over and over and over again in the Levitical law, that when sin had taken place, offering and sacrifice was required. It also means first by his blood, it, it also means mortal suffering. We are made near by the grief and agonies of the Redeemer. The shedding of blood indicates pain, loss of energy, health, comfort, happiness, and further still, the term blood signifies death. How is this peace produced? By his blood. By the covenant, by the, by the new covenant wrought in Christ's blood. At the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God, the new covenant was inaugurated. The payment and penalty for all the sins of the elect of God were paid once and for all, such that the Son of God could proclaim on the cross that it is finished. That he had soaked up with his mortal body the sufferings due to man. That he, in offering and giving of his spirit to God, satisfied the wrath due to a sinful and wretched people. Peace was restored between God and man in time. It existed, we recognize it existed prior to that as, as Christ was the surety of that covenant. And so God could have peace with man prior to that as they were united to Christ. But in the act, in the historical act, we see the peace of God coming to man. What was the 
other way in which he produces peace. First between God and man by his blood, then between man and man by abolishing in his flesh the enmity that existed between these two people, these two people groups. What was abolished or put away? It says expressly that he, in 15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, and even further, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. The law of commandment and ordinances defined who was in and who was out of the covenant people of God. We, we, we've been reading as a congregation through Leviticus, and we've been seeing these ordinances of God, whereby if you did not follow them, then you were cut off. You were outside the people of God. And certainly if, if you were not a part of Israel, you were not the covenant people of God. The law of commandments and ordinances defined who was in and who was out of the covenant people of God. And so here it says that Christ abolishes these ordinances. The word rendered is to abolish is the word often used by Paul for this for to supersede by something better than itself. It can also be translated to make void. Look at Romans 2.15, for when Gentiles, or listen to it, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Could we, could we understand what Paul is saying here in Ephesians a little bit better after reading Romans? I think so. Because we may ask ourselves, well, Christ has abolished the law. He's superseded it. He's made it void. But it says that he's abolished a certain law that was a dividing wall of enmity between Jew and Gentile. And this specific law was the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And if we have any example, Romans 2.15 shows us that the moral law was not a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, for it is written on the hearts of all men. So we recognize that this is not Paul saying that the moral law is abolished and has been made void and has no bearing or has no place in the life of the believer. Paul is saying that the law of commandments contained in ordinances has been abolished, that's been made void, it's been superseded by something better than itself. We can go further and look for further help. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It's going to sound very similar. When you were dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression. 
having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And if we come back to Ephesians 2 and we see that Christ in his flesh has abolished the law, has abolished the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances. We see his same word in Colossians 2. And he references ceremonial laws. And we find the same configuration of ceremonial laws in Isaiah 9. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath. The calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah, judgment upon the people of Israel for their iniquities. Yet they were still participating in these ceremonial activities. And God is saying they are worthless to me. They were to point you away from yourself to something greater, to the substance that is Christ. And so the abolishing of this law contained in ordinances abolishes this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, whereby there is no longer the difference in Jew and Gentile as being the definition of God's people. These ordinances and laws no longer separate those in the covenant of God and outside the covenant of God. But in abolishing them, he takes the two and makes them one. We understand how it was enmity between the Jew and Gentile. We we see how they were ridiculed and they were uh, persecuted for these practices in, in very... Uh, small narratives we see in Daniel that he, he sought to obey the Lord in the ordinances of what he should and shouldn't eat. 
And there was this kind of mockery made of it. And yet we recognize that that produced enmity. So those who we recognize that it is very similar even today. That uh, men and women look upon what we do here on the Lord's Day and they look upon these New Testament ordinances of God's worship as base and ridiculous, contemptible. They carry a kind of hatred and disdain to all such who make conscious of them. Therefore, it's called an enmity between Jew and Gentile. The enmity has been abolished in Christ, for they prefigured Christ, his graces, his actions, his sufferings and benefits, they being the shadow and his being the substance. This is what, how Christ produces peace. He predestined peace. He produces peace. He also preaches peace. These aren't just past tense things. This, this is present day, now, up to the minute realities. Here in verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Here, the Abrahamic promise, the blessing to all nations, is finding mysterious and wider eschatological fulfillment. We recognize that he's preaching peace to those who are far away, to nations that were not set apart in the Old Covenant, to people of those nations. And he's pre preaching peace to them. In the original, this idea of preaching peace, this is an announcement of proclaiming good news. This peace is gospel peace. You know, it, it's funny, uh, you think about uh, some of the stuff that was that's even mocked by the world, but early on in the pandemic, if I'm not mistaken, um, there was a viral video that was a bunch of uh, celebrities and they were all singing John Lennon John Lennon's song Imagine together right imagine a world where all the people lived in harmony and this world is one without religion without heaven or hell and John Lennon's words and imagine are supposed to be a, it's supposed to be a song about peace and even i think amongst the common grace of man they mocked it to an extent and yet even us even with greater degree are able to see the futility of that song that this peace is not it's not a a generic peace it's a gospel peace and that this peace to those who are far off is the same peace as those who are near there's not one gospel for them and one gospel for us. There's one gospel for all. Paul will go on to say even beyond that, that there is uh, one father, one spirit, one baptism. For there's one people of God. We read the first 
verse, or we read verse 24 of Ezekiel 37, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I give to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. We recognize the eschatological typology there where we find it, though not in the purview of our verses today, but we find it in that last section of Ephesians 2, where now these people, that this wall of hostility has been taken down, that now they are fellow citizens and they are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together, is growing into this eschatological end, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God. Praise the Lord that he preaches peace today. Not only did he predestined it, not only does he produce it, but he continues to preach it. Because this peace was preached by Christ to them. In some way, Paul is saying that, that, this pre, that he came and preached peace to you who were far away. He's applying this to the Gentiles. He's applying this to the Jewish Christians. How is Christ preached to them? This certainly was written after his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. Well, he does so through the weekly means of grace they attended to, through the proclamation of the word of God. We attend to these means in order to hear Christ and be reminded of the gospel of peace. We learn of our unchangeable reconciliation to God through Christ. And we have an outlet for the Spirit wrought desire to give him the glory due his name. I don't know what your uh, uh, doctrine of church is or right now at this moment, but I, I want to at least add it, or if it's not in line with this, I want to modify it. When you come to the Lord's Day worship, you don't come to a social group, you don't come to a group of friends you do come to a body of believers and those we're all struggling with different things and we want to encourage one another, we want to edify one another. But I hope you realize that we've come to practice the new humanity, to experience the new creation created in and by Christ in a weekly manner. There's much anticipation in a weekly Lord's service for we partake of ordinances that we won't when we're feasting with the Lamb in his presence in his kingdom. But there is much reality to what we do. That though 
uh, that when you sit under the preaching of the word, hopefully you're anticipating to hear the gospel of peace preached to you, that you understand that, that whatever you're dealing with and going through, first start with peace with God as the foundation. Then if it's a disruption in relationship between a brother or sister in Christ, recognize the peace wrought through Christ in his flesh. And if there are other things, take hope in knowing that we are all being fitted and built together towards the end of being a dwelling place of God, to where we all give glory to him, to where strife and trial and pain end. We may take joy weekly in being reminded and participating in this as God and Christ has ordained. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Son of God who has given his body and blood on our behalf. We thank you for the reconciliation that is afforded to us through faith in him. We thank you for the Spirit who works new life in those that have been predestined for peace. Oh Lord, we ask that we would not grow weary in being reminded of this. That we may take joy in this proclamation weekly, in the singing of hymns, in the reading of your word, and in earnest prayer to the partaking of these elements that with joy in our hearts we anticipate the day when our faith shall be sight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.